there is a God and he has enemies. There is a God and he has enemies. In 1736, Jonathan Edwards, he was preaching to his congregation a sermon on Romans chapter 5, verse 10, and he said this, Men in general will own that they are sinners, yet few of them are sensible that they are God's enemies. They do not see how they can be truly so called, for they are not sensible that they wish God any hurt or endeavor to do Him any. This morning's text will make clear not only that God has enemies, but what it is about them that makes them enemies. By the end of the sermon, you should have answers to at least two questions. Who does God regard as enemies and why does God regard them as enemies? If you are visiting with us today, we're in the middle of a series on the last 12 books of the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, named minor not because they're minor in importance, but they're just minor in length. They are very short books. In fact, if you were to put all these books together, from Hosea to Malachi, and if you were to compare them to one of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, and I did it this week, you'd see that those 12 books are just about the same thickness as one of those major prophets, which is why for the first few centuries of the church, they didn't call them the minor prophets. They called them the book of the 12. And the prophets who wrote these books, they were preaching to God's people, to Israel and to Judah between the years of 750 B.C. and 450 B.C. And this morning, we come to the fourth book, the most minor of all the minor prophets. That is the book of Obadiah, which is the shortest book in the entire Old Testament. We don't know a lot about Obadiah. We know that his name means servant of God, and we know that he served God by writing this brief prophecy. And he wrote it after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And we know that this prophecy was addressed to the people of Edom. The nation of Edom, who had helped Babylon conquer and exile the nation of Judah. And Obadiah's message is very straightforward. It's a simple message. God was going to destroy Edom. His message was that God was going to destroy Edom for the violence that she committed against 
Judah. But God was ultimately going to deliver Israel. So there are two parts to this book, and so two parts to this sermon. If you're taking notes, you may want to write these down. Part one is the destruction of Edom. And part two is the deliverance of Judah. So that is where we are going. But first, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we need help to understand your word. And we need help to apply your word. We know that our minds will be dark and our hearts will be cold without you. So by your Holy Spirit, give us light and heat, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Obadiah. A good name, by the way. My wife and I have four boys, and over the years I can remember that I had lots of names that were vetoed by my wife (laughs) for our kids. And I'm sure Obadiah, Obi, would have been short, was one of them. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find the book of Obadiah on page 724. Like I said, there's two parts to this book. One chapter, verses 2 through 16, Obadiah tells us about the destruction of Edom. Part 2 will be verses 17 through 21, where Obadiah will tell us about the deliverance of Judah. But in verse 1, we have his brief introduction. So let's look at verse 1. It begins, the vision of Obadiah. So that's what's coming, the vision of Obadiah. Obadiah was given a vision from God. It was a a mind film of something that was going to happen in the future. And here it is, the rest of verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations Rise up, let us rise against her, that is Edom, for battle. So here's the vision. God was recruiting nations to rise against Edom in battle. So here's what we know about Edom. Edom was a small country. It's about 25 miles wide and 100 miles long. And it was southeast of Judah. So you had God's people divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, and then Judah in the south, and then just southeast of Judah was this nation of Edom. The people who lived in Edom, the Edomites, they were descendants of Esau. You remember Esau, he was Jacob's brother. Back in Genesis 12, you remember we have Abraham. God chose this man, Abraham. Abraham was given a son. His son was named Isaac. Isaac was given twin sons, and their names were Jacob and Esau. And they were very different men. 
Esau was an independent man. He was a self-reliant man. In fact, there are a lot of admirable qualities about Esau when you read about him in Genesis 25, 26, 27, and then later in chapter 36. But here is how he was not admirable, and it's a big one. Esau was indifferent to God. Esau didn't care about God. Esau did not have any interest in knowing or pleasing God. Jacob did. And so it is said by God of these two brothers in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, and then Paul will quote it in Romans 9. God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Esau, through his indifference, had made himself an enemy of God. And his descendants in this nation of Edom, they were no different. Roger Crooks, in his book, One Lord, One Plan, One People, writes, Jacob and Esau stand for opposing principles. Jacob... And his descendants, Judah, embody the principle of God's undeserved and unearned grace. Esau and his descendants, Edom, represent humanity in rebellion against God. It's a good summary. So, this prophecy of Obadiah is directed to Edom. Which, curiously, makes this the only book in the Bible primarily addressed to unbelievers. Think about that. The prophets, there are prophets in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The prophets in the Old Testament typically spoke to Old Testament Believers and the prophets in the New Testament typically spoke to New Testament Christians, but Obadiah was preaching to a nation that was an unbelieving nation. So let's get to part one. Look with me at verses 2 through 16. And here is Obadiah's vision of the destruction of Edom. Or the destruction of God's enemies. Verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. God was going to war against Edom, which he did. Through the Babylonians in 553 B.C. And the result of that war was total destruction. That would be the end of Edom. Total destruction. Total and ultimate annihilation. Which is what is described next in verses 5 through 9. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? 
If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? In other words, God's destruction was going to be worse than what the thief would bring. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So you see, there's total destruction which was also predicted by one of the major prophets, Jeremiah, who wrote in chapter 49, verses 9 and 10, If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed and his brothers, and his neighbors, and he is no more. So the total destruction of Edom was in store. Why? Why was God going to destroy Edom? Did he have a reason? Is God's judgment here or ever? Arbitrary? Why did he hate them? This is not an act of love. There's no way around that. Why did God hate Edom? What had they done to become enemies of God? I don't know about you, but I want to know answers to those questions. Well, there's two reasons given in the text. The second flows out of the first. But first, they were proud. Look at verse 3 with me. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground. So Edom was a sinfully proud nation. The Edomites, we know, lived in a mountainous region. That's what it means in verse 3 when it says, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty Dwelling. The Edomites, Edom, was a mountainous region, which made it easier for them to defend themselves against enemies. It created pride. And their capital city was Petra. Some of you have seen images of the city of Petra and don't realize it. You've seen it if you've seen the movie. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You remember the final scene of that film? When they are on their way to the 
so-called resting place of the Holy Grail. And they come to a temple that has been carved out of this sandstone cliff. Well, that was Petra. That was built, that was carved out of the rock later than the time of Edom, but that is the region that was inhabited by Edom. And their capital city was that area of Petra. You also remember in the movie, on the way to that temple is this very narrow gorge. And so the capital city actually could only be entered through that narrow canyon, which at certain points is only 10 feet wide. That's a bottleneck. That's a very easy position to defend. And so it's been said by military historians that 12, just 12 well-armed and trained men could hold that position against hundreds of men. And so Edom was very proud. Very proud of their position. We don't need help. We don't need God. Like their father Esau, they were independent. They were self-reliant. They were indifferent to God. They saw themselves as unconquerable. And so God says to them, verse 4, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And so pride is the first thing that made Edom an enemy to God. And I'd like to pause here and talk for a few minutes about pride. When you think about pride, let's think about pride for a little bit. When you think about pride alongside other sins, so you get other sins in your mind, especially really bad sins. And when you think of pride, where does it rank? Where does the sin of pride rank in comparison with other sin? Where does it rank with God? I don't know if there's a sin that God brings up more than pride. I don't know if there is a sin that God is more strongly opposed to than pride. 1 Peter 5.5 says, God opposes the proud. Can you imagine being opposed by God like Edom? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what is this terrible sin? I know that you've all felt proud before. It is that feeling of satisfaction when you or someone you love does something honorable. Have you felt that? That feeling of satisfaction when you or someone that you care about has done something good, has done something honorable, 
They've done something that requires hard work or bravery or discipline or humility or wisdom. I've been proud many times of my wife, my children, and many of you. Now, when a Christian feels that pride, when a Christian feels that pride, they of course understand that it is God's work behind their work. They understand that it is God's enabling that makes it possible for me or for someone else to do something that is honorable. Anything good out of me or out of you is ultimately owing to God. And that's what a Christian knows and that's what a Christian understands. And so here is a Christian now with me and we're feeling satisfied in something honorable that we have done or that someone else has done. And Christian, what happens quickly with that feeling of pride? It transitions, for the Christian, it transitions to praise. Giving credit and gratitude and glory to God. Have you experienced that, Christian? I have a son or a daughter, and they have worked hard for something. They've been disciplined, or they stepped out and were courageous or brave. And, and I think to myself, that's my boy. Or I think to myself, that's my girl. And I'm filled with this satisfaction. And then what happens? God, thank you. Thank you. Not possible, I know. Apart from your work, not possible apart from your goodness, not possible apart from your favor. Now, what about an unbeliever? What about someone who does not know God through Christ? Pride turns to praise of self. That feeling of satisfaction that I or someone I care about has done something honorable, it turns to praise of self and not God. So I believe in myself, I have faith in myself, I am proud of myself. It is turned inward, it ignores God. It doesn't go anywhere else with that pride. It ignores God and so it, and here we get to the heart of why this is so offensive to God, it robs God of glory and what have you all been created as image bearers of God to do Give God glory. We are here to glorify God. And pride cuts this off. 
It turns our praise inward. For the Christian, we feel satisfied in ourselves or someone else, and then we turn to God with credit and value and worth and trust and faith and reliance and dependence and gratitude. But a non-Christian turns all this inward. All of it. There's no destination for any of that. And they deny God as the source. And instead praise Himself. So no wonder that God opposes the proud. James Boyce, in a sermon on Obadiah, said, Nothing lies so much at the heart of the problems of the human race as this prideful desire to take over God's place, or which it amounts nearly to the same thing, to pretend that we can do without Him. This pride of Edom made them an enemy of God. Are you sinfully proud? When you hear those two descriptions, are you like Edom? Are you sinfully proud? What do you put your trust in? Do you put your trust in yourself? Or do you put your trust in God? What is your security bound up in? Is it your good works? Your success? What others say about you? Money? Your appearance? Your health? Your body? Your possessions? Your accomplishments? Your job? Your friendships? Your patriotism? Your obedience of the Ten Commandments, your baptism, your church attendance, all the bad things that you don't do. Christian, the opposite of pride is humility. If you and I trust in God, it will not result in pride, but humility. Not self-reliance, not self-praise, but God-reliance. Praising God. Let me just say two more things. Two quotes, actually. They're hard words. And I was hit hard by them this week, and I hope the same for you. As I was evaluating my own life and thinking about pride and, and seeing it, and seeing the lack of humility. These were helpful for me and maybe for you. The first is from Mark Dever, and he wrote, If you are offended by the idea that pride is your greatest enemy, consider what other things offend you. If you were more humble, you would find fewer things that offend you. Through the gospel, I understand what I deserve. And the worst anyone has ever treated me is not even close to what I deserve. Yet how often I'm offended. And then a long time ago, John Chrysostom wrote, 
sincere contrition and repentance. And he describes it. If we speak evil of ourselves a thousand times and yet are affronted when another says anything of the kind, this is not humility. You get what he's saying? I'll read it again. If we speak evil of ourselves a thousand times and yet are affronted when another says anything of the kind, this is not humility. This is not a confession of sin, but only pretense and vanity. We assume the appearance of humility that we may be admired and praised. It is not humility, he's saying, to, to, to admit generally that you are a sinner. Oh, I'm a sinner. I'm terrible. I deserve the wrath of God. I do, I do terrible things. That's not humility if when you are confronted with an actual sin, you deny it. In other words, anybody can talk humble talk. Anybody can pretend to be humble. But it's another thing when confronted with your sin to respond in humility and not pride. So Edom was proud, and this made them enemies to God. And now second, because of that pride, they opposed God's people. So this is the second way Edom had become an enemy of God. Remember, the Edomites were neighbors to Judah, but not just neighbors, they were brothers. Jacob and Esau, their descendants. So they were brothers, and yet they mistreated God's people. And you don't want to mess with God's people. God is defensive of His people. God is protective of His people. And an enemy of His people is an enemy of God. So that is described in verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, there it is, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress." So if you read this, not only did Edom not help their brother Judah, they took advantage of them when they were weak and vulnerable. They colluded with the Babylonians in 586. They betrayed their brothers. Stabbed them in the back. Psalm 137.7 Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So they were a proud people who had mistreated God's people, and so they were enemies of God. And so, what's Obadiah's message? 
destruction, total destruction for Edom. And not only Edom, but for all who forsake God. Verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So there it is. That is the first part of Obadiah's prophecy, the destruction of Edom. And now the second, which we'll read now, verses 17 through 21. It will ultimately go well for God's people. And so God says this to Edom, which is harsh, isn't it? He's not saying this to his people. Of course, his people will read this, but he's saying this to Edom. Not only are you going to be destroyed, Edom, but Edom, my people who you think you've destroyed, are not going to be destroyed. I will restore them. Total annihilation for you, Edom. You are my enemy, but my people will be restored. Verse 17 and following. But in Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, capital for God's people, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepherad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So in summary... Mount Esau would be destroyed. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 21. But Mount Zion would be restored. Verse 17, verse 21. God's people would be saved. But those who trusted in themselves and mistreated God's people would be cursed. And now isn't that all a fulfillment of what God said to his man Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3? I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and him who dishonors you, like Edom, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is the destruction of Edom and the deliverance of Judah. Let's wrap this up. In conclusion, 
How does this apply to you and how does this apply to me? And what are we going to do about it? God clearly proclaims himself as a king in this prophecy, doesn't he? He is the king over all. It doesn't matter what's happened to his people, how bleak it looks, he's going to restore them and there's nothing anyone can do about it. It doesn't matter how powerful Edom looks. God's going to destroy them, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. So God is king over all. Now let me ask you a question. God is king over all. He will save his people. He will save his friends. He will destroy His enemies. Does that truth encourage you or alarm you? You've got to ask that question. Don't just leave it alone. When you hear that truth, that God is king over all, And he will deliver his people, but he will destroy his enemies. Does that encourage you? Or does that alarm you? Another way of asking that question is, are you God's friend? Or are you God's enemy? This morning, right now, who are you in relation to God? Are you at peace with Him or are you not at peace with Him? Or the better question, is He at peace with you or is He not at peace with you? Would God call you His friend or would God call you His enemy? Well, for those of you who are enemies of God today, You can face that. An unbeliever, you are proud of yourself and you have no gratitude for God and no praise for God, no glory, credit for God. Well, this prophecy was written to people just like you. Remember, this was written to the proud. This was written to Edom. Can you now admit your proud dependence on yourself and not on God? Can you admit your indifference to God? That you've got things about you or you've got things that you've done that you hold on to for your security. And that's why you believe that you are at peace with God. Or are you ready to admit that there will come a day when you will die and you'll lose all of that? And you're just going to stand before God. And you're not going to have anything in and of yourself to bring to Him. And you're not going to have anything to offer Him. 
And if on that day you come trusting in yourself and relying on yourself and plan to rattle off the good things that you've done or the good person that you are, he will say to you, depart from me. Matthew 7 talks about this. He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And you'll say, well, it must be some mistake. You must have the wrong roll call. I was a member at this church, and everybody there, you don't understand, they loved me. I served in this ministry and that ministry. I obeyed all your commandments. I mean, I'm good people. I understand why he's not on your list, but I'm, I'm on that list. Can you look again? Depart from me. I never knew you. The fact that that would be your answer is proof that you do not know God. Because believers, what are we bringing with us? Jack squat. <laughs> Zero, nothing. I mean, even the good stuff that I did. What happened? With, how did I feel ultimately about that good stuff that I did? I had that, that fleeting, I'm proud, I'm satisfied, and then it turned into praise and giving credit and value to God. Are you kidding me? I'm not dragging any of that with me. You're not bringing anything before God. I'm with Him. Isn't that what we say as believers? I'm with him, Jesus. I'm in Christ. He has saved me. I'm so sad I didn't live the way I should have lived, but he lived the way I should have lived. And he gave me his life. That it would count as if I did it. And I should suffer your wrath right now. And I should suffer eternal alienation from you. But I'm in him. And he suffered that punishment in my place. So I love him. I'm following him. I'm serving him. And in Christ, we spend eternity now with God forever. So if you're proud this morning, if you're an unbeliever, turn from your proud dependence on self and trust in God. Remember those words of Jonathan Edwards. Most people can admit they are sinners, but few can admit they are enemies of God. You are a sinner, unbeliever. And you are an enemy of God right now. You are in need of salvation. Take your pride, turn it into praise for the good that God has done. Jonathan Edwards, he went on in that very sermon to say this, and then I'll conclude by addressing you believers, who I hope and trust are most of you today. He went on in that very sermon, which is, was a sermon about enemies of God, and it was brilliant. He said this, enemies of God, 
They hear God is an infinitely holy, pure, and righteous being, and they do not like him upon this account. They see no manner of beauty or loveliness, no taste, any sweetness in them. And on account of their distaste of these perfections, they dislike all his other attributes. They have greater aversion to him because he is omniscient and knows all things and because his omniscience is a holy omniscience. They are not pleased that he is omnipotent and can do whatever he pleases because it is a holy omnipotence. They are enemies even to his mercy because it is a holy mercy. They do not like his immutability Because by this he never will be otherwise than he is an infinitely holy God. An enemy of God does not like God, does not love God. A friend of God, a believer, knows God. And loves him. When you hear a sermon. When you read the Bible. Your knowledge of God will grow. You know it's not about knowledge. I hope. But that's happening. I hope. This sermon, other sermons, sermons you might listen to throughout the week, books about God that are good that you're reading, the Bible most importantly. You are learning about God. You are coming to know Him. And as you come to know God, those of you who are enemies of God will hate Him. And those of you who are God's friends will love him. The same sun, the Puritans would say, that melts the ice hardens the clay. So Christian, the more you learn of God, the more you love God. And those of you who are not Christians and not believers... It may be that the more you learn of God, the more your hatred of Him will be kindled. So my encouragement to all of you would be to know God. And then my prayer for all of you would be that God would open your eyes and ears and hearts to see that he is altogether lovely. And that love would be kindled in your heart for God and devotion to him and commitment to him as you see him for who he is. Let's pray.